Hello. Greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're glad for your interest in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. As you might are aware, probably, in popular thinking, there's a lot of connections and association between the idea of worship and the assembly of Christians. People will call assemblies worship services. People talk about acts of worship. A lot of people, if you were to ask them to define worship, would define it somewhat in terms of going to church. And even if it's not being used to describe the assembly itself, it's being used to describe things often done in an assembly context, like singing. But in the New Testament, the assembly is never called a worship service. There is no passage in the New Testament that speaks of the acts of the assemblies as acts of worship. And the New Testament does not describe the presence or actions of believers in the assemblies as worship. And the reason that this becomes a controversial issue and one full of all kinds of consternation is because of what we mean by the different words going on. And we just use the word worship. And you can go to your Bible, and a lot of Bibles are going to talk about things going on in the assembly in terms of worship. Um, but that's not the primary meaning of the term. The primary meaning of worship is, is seen in Hebrew shahakin and Greek proskune, to bow down, to um, prostrate, to render obeisance. And uh, this is when somebody's bowing down in homage before somebody. It's an act, a supreme act of veneration uh, and dedication uh, to God and to others who are superior. Um, that is the use of the word primarily. Uh, in, in most of the time the word is translated, it's going to be that. Uh, at least in your formal your, your, your formal equivalent versions like King James Version, English Standard Version, and so on and so forth. Some examples, Genesis 18 and verse 2, Exodus 25, uh, Matthew 4.10, Matthew 14.33, Revelation 5.14. Uh, but there's also uh, the Hebrew Vod and the Greek Latriouane, which means to minister, to serve. And there are a lot of times where that word will get translated as worship. Uh, we see it in Exodus 3.12, it's also in Exodus 25, also in Matthew 4.10, and Romans 9.1 and 12.1. And different times that will get translated worship, and that's where some of this confusion comes in. And that's, of course, uh, the challenge, because there's this disconnect between the use and function of worship. Uh, Christians will often use this term almost exclusively in terms of the assembly and in terms of certain acts of religious devotion. Even though the New Testament does not betray any such usage and does not manifest any such usage. So, how, how is this possible and what are we supposed to make of it? Well, uh, I hope that we can see how worship would translate words that would involve prostration and service, because prostration is an act uh, of providing homage uh, and reverence to a superior. And service is also a worship in terms of being acts or adoration or religious service. These are both consistent with the definition of worship in uh, English dictionary. But where is the connection coming from that puts it as the assembly or the acts of the assembly? Well, in the New Testament, there's no examples of Christians prostrating in the, in the assemblies. Uh, there's no command or example of it taking place. The only person who prostrates in the assembly is the unbeliever of 1 Corinthians 14.25, doing so because he's had his heart convicted that God really is among you. 
And so the only thing he understands to do when he believes he's in the presence of God is to prostrate. Uh, it's very interesting that Paul will freely use that term there, but does not otherwise use it in terms of the New Testament assembly. Uh, we can define the acts of the assembly as service, and that's what they are. But, interestingly, the New Testament doesn't make that explicit connection. It's not to say that it's not there, but there's no explicit connection. And the New Testament didn't speak of the Acts of the Assembly exclusively in terms of service. In Romans chapter 12, if you look in verses 2 through 21, how Christians are to be the living holy sacrifice, which is our uh, logike latreia, our reasonable service, our spiritual worship, however you want to translate that, uh, you can see all kinds of things going on. A whole host and behaviors, uh, activities and behaviors are mentioned among fellow Christians, among believers. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, uh, to serve one another in the body to uh, understand how we work together in the body and we're all members of each other and members of the body of Christ uh, to uh, not take vengeance to overcome evil with good to uh, do what is uh, honorable in the sight of all men and be at peace with all men as much as depends on us things like that a wide range of things are included in that idea so how did worship come to exclusively refer to the assembly and its acts? Well, it did not come from the New Testament, clearly, but it did come out of denominational usage, and, and specifically the reversion back of, of Old Testament concepts and, and the Old Testament temple service into the New Temple, New Covenant, and Christianity. This is a, a long quote, and it can be found online uh, with the outline uh, for this lesson, if you're interested in it, but it, from, from somebody who's a Lutheran, and, the, and somebody who's very open and honest about how things are going on here. The Christian church is to imitate the pattern in ancient Israel before Christ, where priests and Levites were ministers in worship, taught the people, offered prayers, and made sacrifices. In this way, a Christian clergy came into being, alongside which the universal priesthood of believers was no more than a theoretical entity. Accordingly, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is now understood as a sacrifice. And since the Old Testament law requires daily sacrifice, the Christian priest now offered the sacrifice of the Mass every day. Sacrifice in turn needs an altar. Church buildings were arranged liturgically and built accordingly. And just as at one time the tent of meeting was the place where Yahweh made himself present, so now Christ dwelt in the tabernacle which housed the transformed hosts. Since Israel had kept the Sabbath and strict observance of feast days had been a confessional act, it was now important to hallow Christian festivals. The privileged and exclusive status of priests and Levites in the Old Testament was transferred to priests and deacons and the bishop now took the place of the high priest. Just as a Eucharist was interpreted in terms of the Old Testament sacrifices, so baptism was interpreted as a rite of initiation after the model of circumcision. Nor were the financial aspects of these analogies ignored. Ties were given to Christian priests as they once had been given to the house of Aaron. This is a quote from A.H.J. Gunnawig in Understanding the Old Testament, page 107 and following. And if you look there, he's openly admitted and not only open and admitted, but almost dogmatically established, the need to use ancient Israel as the pattern. And so to consider just how many things that we see in denominational practices have no basis in the New Testament, it's because of the Old Testament pattern. As he said there, the whole idea of a priesthood, a clergy-laity divide, comes out of the fact that that existed in the Old Covenant. Never mind in 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, that uh, the, we are all supposed to be priests before God, that... Uh, 
all Christians stand between God and, and the rest of the people, so to speak, and there's no subset of Christians who stand before between God and the people. Uh, and that's where uh, what God intended for the New Covenant becomes now a theoretical issue because of how old covenant ideas were brought back in. Look at the idea of the church building or the cathedral as a holy place, uh, where God's presence is specifically. That's coming out of the idea of the temple as a place of God's presence in the Old Testament. And again, and this is rejected in the New Covenant because, as Jesus said in John 4, and, and Paul and Peter make clear, the, the place of God's presence is not at a physical location. The place of God's presence is in his people individually and collectively. In 1 Peter 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. The idea that the Lord's Supper is like the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, that's also something that is returning an old idea, uh, daily Mass, as opposed to coming together on the first day of the week, as in Acts 20 and verse 7. And the idea that Sunday must be the Sabbath. Well, in Colossians 2, 4 through 7, 14 through 17, uh, Paul said that uh, the believers should not be judged in matters of a Sabbath day. It's only a shadow that's passed away. The Hebrew author, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, points out that there's another element of the Sabbath. Uh, that when God created from his works, he did not pick up and create again on the eighth day. And so he says that the fullness of the Sabbath rest awaits us in heaven after we have finished working here on this earth. And that shows that the seventh day observance, making it Sunday even. There's no basis for that in the New Testament. There's no basis in New Testament practice. Instead, it's being brought back from the Old Covenant. Likewise, the use of instrumental music in the assembly. What's the justification? David and the Psalms. It's the only justification that can be consistently used uh, or applied. Uh, incense. There's a bunch of other things that happen that come from the Old Covenant. And we reject these things in the New Covenant, because we are in a New Covenant with better promises, and it was made very clear throughout the New Testament that Gentiles were not bound to the law of Moses, and that in the New Covenant many things had changed, and that that which used to be physical was now located in the spiritual. And so that's the case. What about prostrating oneself before God's presence? Now, that was something necessary in the Old Covenant period, where you're bowing down before the temple in Jerusalem. But in the New Covenant... Where do we get the idea that God is somehow present in the assembly of Christians and not with Christians the rest of the time? There's no doubt that, that we are collectively the temple and God dwells in us as the Holy Spirit, through means by means of the Holy Spirit, however you want to understand that from 1 Corinthians 3. But in 1 Corinthians 6, it's also personalized the individual. And so the whole idea that we have this idea of worship coming in the assembly is the same place where instruments came into the assembly, and priests into the assembly, and daily mass into the assembly, and tithes into the assembly. It's coming from uh, a Judaizing tendency, which is condemned in the New Testament, Galatians 2, Colossians 2, Hebrews 7 through 9. And so the idea that worship requires Christians to come together in the assembly and participate in the acts of the assembly is coming from Old Testament uh, temple concepts brought in by the denominations. It's upon the New Testament assemblies. It's not coming from the New Testament itself. Well, that's there, and it's so clear. How come uh, a lot of people don't talk about this? How come that this is not something that we hear frequently and everywhere? Well, uh, uh, it seems to become a culturally acceptable term to talk about the assembly as the worship service and as a period of worship, just like we talk about the church as a church. And so we talk about baptism as more than just immersion. And we don't want to be a group of people who are called, these people don't worship God. As if the idea that we are waiting to prostrate before God again means that we're not serving Him. 
uh, again, uh, word confusion can certainly be used against you. And and and, and it also, uh, some people have tried to take the ideas that we're talking about here and try to use them to say, hey, we're supposed to, do, we can do whatever we want. And that's also something that is not commended or not necessary or justified. Uh, a lot of people, uh, though, when they hear about these things, and, and what they've already perhaps done in their research, is it's been very seductive to understand this idea of proskunein, of prostration in spiritual terms, and make it more like Latre Yuane. Um, and of course, you go back and see how Shahak, the Old Testament con uh, uh, connection, is just like uh, involved all the temple services. And so you see the connection between the two, and now, ah, it's all about the assembly. Um, in English, worship is acts of religious performance. So, very easy to give that to serve idea upon to prostrate. And then all of a sudden, we have specific acts as acts of worship, even though we would not speak of acts of prostration. And that's why we keep going back to this idea that proskunein is not less than a physical gesture. Probably more, should be more, but not less than the physical gesture. And as an actual physical gesture directed before to a superior that uh, you're supposed to humble yourself before, and that that person is actually there and veneration is due. Uh, that proskunein is itself an action, like praying, like singing. Uh, that these action, they're act, it's an action in and of itself. It's not the way to describe other actions. And interestingly, if there was going to be this spiritual spin on it, if there is going to be uh, some kind of idea of continual prostration that doesn't involve the physical, you would expect to see that, that being manifest in New Covenant use, and it is not. That physical element is maintained, that actual element is maintained uh, throughout in the Gospels and Acts, and yes, even later on in Revelation. So... Uh, if we were supposed to understand that the actions we are doing in the assembly were to be considered prostration worship, or if we were to prostrate in the assembly, there's plenty of opportunity for him to tell us that in the New, Coven in the New Testament, and yet it, it's not there. Instead, what we see from John 4, that God is a spirit, and those who prostrate to the poor of the Father should prostrate in soul and in truth. Uh means that we submit to the will of God, God and Christ in all things, and we look forward to the day when we will again be in God's presence and be able to prostrate before Him. So, what does all of this mean? And this, this becomes a big question. So what? So what? What does this change about things? And we begin with, what does, does this mean we don't worship God today? Well, again, we go back to our terms. We've already not been prostrating before him. That's that's not new. Nor is this an expectation that we should start actually prostrating. Because there's no example of anybody prostrating uh, before God in the New Covenant between Jesus' ascension and before his return. And in Revelation, it's clear we will prostrate again before him. Um, and... Uh, Revelation 11, 1 and 14, 7. So prostration, no. But when it comes to, uh, we, we prostrate in soul. Our soul prostrates is where that has, is coming from in John 4, which is looking a lot like that idea of worship as service, or Latre Uane. And we serve God, and we're supposed to serve God. Uh, there's no argument about that. Paul continually talks about that. Romans 12, 1, Philippians 3, 3, many other passages. But it's not limited to the assembly. And so to speak about it only in terms of the assembly would be to use it in a way that is not being used in the New Covenant. And it should involve our whole beings all the time in Romans 12 and verse 1.
to be a living and holy sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So, what, how can that be? How, why are there this major change if God is the same throughout the covenants? Well, and this goes back to why imposing the Old Testament concepts upon the New is the problem in the first place, and that's recognizing God's presence in the idea of the temple. Uh, you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 and 10. The Hebrew author gives as workable a summary as ever of what's going on and it's described in great detail in Leviticus. That The first covenant had regulations for worship here, that's probably service, and earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behold, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a gold which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed upon the time until the time of Reformation. Now that's what's going on in the New Covenant, in the Old Covenant. There's this tent or temple located in a specific place. And God's presence, the Shekinah, is present in the cloud of that most holy place. And before it, God's ministers, priests, and Levites performed sacrifices, offered incense and prayers, sang songs, played instruments. And all of these physical activities, all of those excuse me, are physical activities, and prostration is too, and they would bow down before the presence of God there. Uh... In the year 70, the temple is destroyed. So the idea that God's temp presence is on the temple is, is clearly false. Uh, so where are we going to bow down before God's presence? And that's why we keep going back to in Romans 8, 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Ephesians 2, 22, 3, 17, 2 Timothy 1, 14, and other passages. The presence of God is in believers, collectively and individually. And the image of 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Ephesians 2, and 1 Peter 2, is that the temple of God is made up of the apostles and prophets, Jesus is a chief cornerstone, you've got uh, individual members as the temple stones, built, fit together, and the presence of, and the Spirit is, is filling it. And thus you have God's presence in the temple. And if you look, we've got all these activities internalized. You look at Romans 12.1, that idea of a living and holy sacrifice. Well, where is he getting that idea from? Well, the sacrifices Israel offered, but it's not an animal now, it's you. You and I are the sacrifices. In First Peter 2 and verse 5, we're also the priests that uh, offer the sacrifice. How can we be both the priests offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself? Well, there you go. That's the power of metaphor. We can be both at the same time. Because there's no one else standing between God and the people, except us. Uh, the Lord Jesus being the mediator, First Timothy 2 and 5, um, as high priest. Uh, so there's no stand. We are the ones standing between God and the people, ministering, serving for God, and proclaiming His purposes, and we do that by pouring out ourselves uh, for His purposes, that being that living and holy sacrifice. In Revelation eight and verse four, we're told that the prayers of the believers were as incense. That in the 
this 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 spiritual temple in heaven that John is seeing that the prayers are incense. Therefore, it wouldn't be too far to say that the harps represent the songs of the saints as well. In Ephesians 5.19, when sing, song is sung, the instrument that's being played uh, is singing with a melody in your heart, making melody in your heart, plucking the heart, so to speak. That's where the uh, that's the instrument now being played uh, before God. And so notice that all that stuff that's external and physical in the Old Covenant is now internal and spiritual in the New. That's where we get, you know, John 4, 20, 24. It shows that Jesus is kind of paving the way for this by pointing out, look, both of these places that people are going to prostrate before God are going to be, are, are not going to, you're not going to do that anymore. Instead, you're going to prostrate, you're going to render obeisance in spirit and in truth. And so what Jesus is saying is confirming what the apostles and their teachings have said, that the physical trappings of the Old Testament religious system are supposed to be spiritual. The day will come when we will prostrate before the Lord. But now we need to subject our will to God, our Father, who dwells in us, however understood. That we can't go to a temple, that we are the temple. And that the ministrations of the New Covenant, the religious service of the New Covenant, are accomplished all the time in every sort of context as we live our lives. As we become more conformed to the image of the Son in Romans 8 and verse 29. As we do His commandments in 1 John 2, 3-6. And walk as He walked. So where does all of this leave worship in terms of the assembly? Right? Well, isn't God present in the assembly? People like pointing out in, in Matthew 18 and verse 20, a uh, verse we haven't talked about much, but uh, that uh, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in among them. And we've looked at 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, Ephesians 2, 19-22, and 1 Peter 2, 5-8, all of which speak of believers as a temple. And this, these speak to the idea that God dwells in believers as a collective. And God would be present, in a special way in the assembly, would be a, 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 a very understandable deduction, and therefore were to bow down to him and worship him in that context. That would be a very seductive deduction, wouldn't it? And yet the New Testament authors don't go there. There is no passage that uses the idea of prostration or bowing down to God among believers in the assembly even though there's plenty of times to do that. It's because God is present in the assembly, but he's also present with believers outside of the assembly. And we don't get the impression from 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, or 1 Peter that the collective assembly is only the temple of God when it's assembled in a local congregation. Because God is present in the, his, his temple, um, in the church, the assembly, even when it's not assembled. So, why do we have the assembly? Some people have built their understanding of the purpose and value of the assembly in terms of worship. And so to, to start suggesting a disconnect between worship and the assembly, means people start questioning, well, why do we have the assembly at all? Well, again, the, the, the difficulty with that is, is not from the Bible, because that's not the foundation upon which the Bible has built the assembly. Instead, in 1 Corinthians 14.26 and Hebrews 10.24-25, the reason for the assembly is the edification, the building up, and the encouragement or the strengthening of Christians. Now, uh, again, one of the big concerns, and this has happened, people have recognized, oh, so we, this, this worship paradigm that we've been given is not exactly accurate. So it's really all about edification and encouragement. So now we can do what we want to do. We're going to do things we find edifying and encouraging. And that's where people have gone wrong. That is not a necessary conclusion from everything that we've been discussing. 
In fact, nothing about how the assembly is conducted should change. Because God has already established what it takes to build up and to strengthen fellow Christians in the assembly. We sing, we pray, we teach, we preach, we partake of the Lord's Supper. These are the types of things that we do. The same things we've always been doing. Those are the means by which we build up and strengthen one another. And we're still serving God in the assembly, just as we've always been doing, because we're, our service needs to be according to God's pur uh, purposes and in His truth. And so, uh, we, how does God want to build each other up? By doing these things. When we serve each other this way, we're serving God. We're praising God. We're doing all kinds of things that do devote ourselves to God. That, that, that doesn't change. God himself has already established these things in Acts 2, 42, 27, 1 Corinthians 14, 16, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Ephesians 5, 19, and Colossians 3, 16. Uh, it gives us the encouragement and the strength to go out in the rest of our lives to serve God according to his commandments. So, okay, that's, you know, we, we, we don't have to change what we're doing. We have a, a, a different focus. Uh, what do we call it? Well, we just call it what the New Testament authors called it, the assembly. First Corinthians eleven eighteen, the ecclesia, the coming together yourselves. Uh, well, where we can ask people where they assemble, or with whom they assemble. We don't need to change the assembly and its acts. We just have to, if we want to be consistent with the scriptures, we just have to reframe a little bit of our understanding. And we need to understand that it's a part. It's a very important part, but it's only a part of our only overall service to God. And to put it another way, the assembly we seek to accomplish a great spiritual pleasure that equips us and encourages us for the larger spiritual mission that we are to be take, uh, accomplishing when we leave and go out into the world. And so, look more at worship in the assembly. I hope that we've seen that the, there is, the exclusive connection between worship and the assembly does not come from the New Testament, but from the doctrines of denominations. And that there's a major covenant distinction involved here. That in the old covenant, you went somewhere to prostrate before God, do a bunch of other physical activities. And in many ways, not always, in many ways in the new covenant, that those things have been internalized and spiritualized. And that our actions in the assembly don't change. Instead, we can focus on the real purpose of the assembly, integrate the assembly more coherently into our overall lives of service to God. And that is why we must, in all things, serve God properly in spirit and in truth at all times. And we're glad that you've joined us. If you've got some questions about anything we've discussed here, if you'd like to explore it further, uh, please feel free to contact me at uh, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. It's also true if you want to talk about some other issue, if you need to talk or you have a prayer request. And if you'd like to learn more about the church here in Venice, in the west side of Los Angeles, uh, if you'd like to come meet with us, uh, any way we can be of service, you can reach out to us online at venicechurchofchrist.org, and we're also on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.